morning. Good to see you. Please open your Bibles again to Acts chapter 13. This is our text for the first two sessions last night and this morning. Follow as I read verses 1 through 4, and again, I'm reading from the New King James. Acts 13, verse 1. Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. In, in my opinion, this is the epitomizing text with respect to the local church being the primary agent in sending missionaries to the world. For our study, I've divided the passage into three parts. We considered the first part last evening. Hopefully, we can cover the two remaining parts this morning. Last evening, we discussed the peculiar distinguishing identity of the first sending church, the church in Antioch. I will not take the time now to review that, except to underscore that certain vital elements that went into making the Antioch church so strategic in this work, those things are inexplicable apart from the sovereign work and purpose of God. For example, the church could not make itself multi-ethnic. It could want to be, it could pray to be, it could make itself as welcoming as possible, but only the reigning Christ could actually make that happen. Neither could the church create for itself the spiritual gifts that were resident, the prophets and the teachers. Those were gifts given by Christ. Now, why do I point that out? And how would I apply that? What practical relevance does that have? Well, beyond the urgency of prayer, I, I would apply the observations in this way. While it is good that every church aspire to be a sending church, that God would raise up 
gifted missionaries in our ranks, and we would be able to send them into the world. That is something to which every church should aspire. But it may not be the sovereign pleasure of Christ to make that happen in every church. I think every preacher should aspire to be as effective and useful as Billy Graham or John Piper. But I think we know that there will be many excellent, studious, hardworking pastor preachers who will never rise to that level of effectiveness. That's the working gift of Christ. Most churches, likewise, may end up being supporting churches more than sending churches. And if that should be the case, there's nothing inferior about that. Supporting churches, supporting missionaries by prayer, by giving, those kind of churches are desperately needed and must not be undervalued. Now, I'm not saying that in any way to discourage your aspirations to be ascending church, but simply to emphasize the strategic usefulness of supporting the work of evangelism and being useful in the kingdom in taking the gospel to the world does not require that we be sending churches, but it does require that we be fully engaged in the work of missions. We're now on to points two and three. The second observation I would make from this text relates to the peculiar work of the Holy Spirit in the Antioch church. We are drawn to the Spirit, to the Spirit's work in a number of ways. First, we have to recognize that the Holy Spirit had been working mightily in Antioch prior to the events recorded in our text. The Spirit had rested powerfully upon those first disciples from Cyprus and Cyrene who brought the gospel to Antioch. Go back again to chapter 11, and we'll be looking at both texts. Acts 11, verse 19. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but Jews only. However, but some were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists or to the Greeks, preaching the Lord Jesus and the hand of the Lord was upon them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. The hand of the Lord. 
was upon them. I take that to be a reference to the powerful, sovereign, irresistible work of the Holy Spirit. As these men bore witness to the gospel of the resurrected Christ, the phenomenal reality that the Son of God had come, lived, died, and had been raised from the dead, as they bore witness to that, the power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit came upon them, accompanied the word, took it home to hearts. Many believed and were converted. Many became the followers of Christ. Now, how how did they become the disciples, the followers, the learners of Christ since Christ had returned to heaven? He had been in this world. He had lived. He had been seen. He had taught audibly in this world. He had suffered and died physically on the cross. He had been raised bodily from the dead. But then in his body, he ascended back into heaven. So how did anyone become and act out discipleship to Christ? How did they follow Christ? How do we follow Christ today? We can't see him. We can't touch him. We can't hear his audible voice. So how do we follow Christ today? Well, these People gave themselves up to him by faith, though they couldn't see him. They believed the record that had been given concerning him. And they gave themselves, their souls, their sins, their lives, their bodies, their everything. They gave themselves up to the unseen Christ by faith, believing that he had the authority to save them but also believing that he had the authority to guide them by his word, which at that time was being spoken and written by his apostles. There's a sense in which following Christ was a bit more complicated then than it is now. We have the completed canon of scripture. We take it, we can read it, we can memorize it. They did not. They had the verbal witness of the apostles. They had those snippets of scripture that were being written as epistles or historical accounts, but the whole canon had not been formulated. So how did they follow Christ? They were very much dependent upon the Holy Spirit. And it may be that they had a sense of dependency upon the Spirit that we lack. We must understand the only thing that has changed for us is the means by which the Spirit teaches and guides That means is now more concrete for us than it was for them. But it's still the Spirit of God who bears witness to the gospel effectually. 
And it's still the Spirit of God who sanctifies us through the Word of God. We must love and be dependent on our Bibles. But in our dependency upon the Bible, we must not lose any dependency upon the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had been working mightily in Antioch, creating new hearts, giving faith and repentance, imparting spiritual gifts, bringing strangers together into the Christian community we call the church. So, as to the work of the Spirit, the work of the Spirit had been going on for some time in Antioch. Observation number two, the revelation of the Spirit's will regarding mission. Go back to chapter 13, verse 2. And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the five leaders, or perhaps a whole congregation, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. I wonder if Barnabas and Saul had a prior knowledge that they had been called to do this work, or if they were finding out at the same time the church was finding out. I don't know any way to answer that from the text, but it's an interesting thought. If it's suddenly announced in church that we need to give ourselves to a season of intense prayer because we are going to ask Barnabas and Saul to leave town and to go do mission. Did Barnabas and Saul look at each other and say, do you know anything about that? I, I suspect, I suspect that they had some inkling that that's what the Spirit of God wanted them to do, but it's one of the many unanswered questions. A very relevant question to us is, of what practical benefit is this account if we cannot discern exactly how the Spirit made His will known in this matter of selecting two men to be sent on mission? By the way, He sent two. I'm not making a big point of this, so obvious in the text. But he did not send Barnabas alone. He did not send Paul alone. He sent them together, and there is, there is a model there that we ought to follow very carefully. But of what practical use is this text if we can't discern how the Spirit communicated his will? How did he say this? Well, I can't answer that dogmatically. But I, I, I do wonder, I do wonder how the church came to choose Barnabas and Saul back in chapter 11 
to take relief funds to Jerusalem. Go back to chapter 11, verse 29. Agabus, a prophet from Jerusalem, had come to Antioch and he had foretold that there was going to be a terrible worldwide famine. And immediately the hearts of God's people in Antioch were drawn to what they knew about the suffering saints in Judea. And the disciples, we are told, verse 29, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Nothing is said here about the leading of the Holy Spirit. So how, why did the church choose Barnabas and Saul? Perhaps, I doubt it, but perhaps there were numerous volunteers to take an all-expense-paid trip to Jerusalem. Maybe there were many who said, I'll take it, I'll take it. The church chose Barnabas and Saul. Why? Well, perhaps because of certain very obvious providential factors, such as the fact that Barnabas had come from Jerusalem and was well-known and trusted there. And the same was true of Saul. He had become known and he had become trusted. And Saul was known not only among the apostles, but he was known among the Jews. And, And given what may have been a time of crisis, there may have been some political maneuvering required to get this money into the hands of the church. And perhaps Saul knew how to engage the hierarchy of Judaism to overcome those kind of difficulties. That's all conjecture, but it is striking. And I don't think it is a mere coincidence that the men that were chosen by the church to carry the monetary gift to Jerusalem were the same men chosen by the Holy Spirit to take the gospel abroad. And whatever else may be said about that, something must be said about the fact that Barnabas and Saul were not only proven gifts of Christ to the church spiritually, but they had also proven themselves trustworthy in very mundane matters, such as taking care of money, and delivering that money faithfully to those for whom it was intended. Remember the words of Christ about money? In Luke chapter 16, Christ said, He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. But he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust 
the true riches. However else, the Holy Spirit will distinguish those that He has chosen to send out with the responsibility of taking the gospel where the gospel has not been. We should expect that the men that He singles out will be proven and trustworthy men, even in something so mundane as finances. If men are not trustworthy, not because they are robbers, but because perhaps they are not disciplined, if men cannot be trusted with finances, should they be trusted with the gospel? Well, the Spirit revealed His will with Barnabas and Saul that they be sent out as missionaries, and they had already been sent out as the conveyors of benevolence. Thirdly, with regard to the work of the Spirit, the Spirit had been at work imparting gifts for ministry among the men He chose in Antioch, back in verse 1 of chapter 13, the church at Antioch had certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Manaen, and Saul. These were men who were distinguished by their knowledge and by their ability to communicate truth. It goes without saying, well, it should go without saying, that those that we send to communicate the gospel be able to communicate the gospel. That they be able to effectively announce the good news. When I was um, still very young in church, it somewhat puzzled me when missionaries would come and preach that very often the missionaries were not good preachers. Now maybe because they were thinking in one language and trying to preach in another. But it somewhat mystified me why were men who were not good preachers sent to the mission field. And of course it then became tempting, tempting to think that's why they were sent to the mission field. But that should never be, right? It could be argued that the Holy Spirit chose the two best preachers in Antioch and sent them out. Observation number four about the work of the Spirit is the sending of the Spirit. In verse 3, chapter 13, we read that having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they, at least the five leaders, sent them away. But then verse 4 says, being sent out by the Holy Spirit. Now, which was it? Did the church send them by their leaders or did the Holy Spirit 
send them. Which was it? It was both. In this actual sending, the church became the instrument by which the Holy Spirit thrust them out. The church sent them, but they were in fact sent by the Holy Spirit. Very important truth. When a church acts prayerfully, in faith, according to the discipline of the Bible, when they have applied the Scriptures to what they are doing, and they have earnestly sought the face of God, and they have come to the conclusion through the application of the Bible, and through prayer, and through conscientious scrutinizing, they've come to the conclusion that these people ought to be sent to the mission field. They can send them in the confidence that what they are doing, the Spirit of God is doing. That it's ultimately not them. It's the work of God. It's the way it is in church discipline. When church discipline is administered faithfully, Christ said, whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. And when the church sins conscientiously in faith, the Spirit of God sins. And we should operate with that confidence. Now with doubts, because if there's ever a time that we need to have a robust confidence that we are doing the will of God, it's when we send men and their families to a far part of the world in the name of Jesus. That should never be guesswork. Another observation about this. In verse 3, we are told they sent them away. The Greek word is a very strong word. It's sometimes used of divorce. It means to release. It means to set free. Send away. Something sobering, even painful for the church. Barnabas and Saul were in one sense being freed from their immediate daily, weekly responsibilities to the local church in Antioch. No longer would they be expected to attend the appointed meetings of the church. No longer would they be expected to preach and teach as they had been doing for at least a year. This would have been, I'm sure, painful for the church. Even a bit frightening. But it's what Christ required. However practical, however necessary, planning, strategizing, um, feasibility studies, however important and necessary those things are, and they are, I don't mean to deprecate that, but the church must never become so absorbed in those practical aspects 
of sending that we lose our dependence upon the supernatural. Christianity is supernatural. If it's not supernatural, it's nothing. If the living God does not dwell in his church, we're fools. If the Spirit of God does not work through the Scripture, as it is read, studied, and preached, then we have all been duped. Christianity is supernatural. And we must rely on the supernatural as we go about the solemn work of separating men and their families for the work of mission. Point number three, last point. We've talked about the identifying characteristics of the church. We've talked about the peculiar activity of the Holy Spirit. And now we want to end by focusing on the peculiar work of the church itself in sending. And and what I'm going to say now is partly review and partly conjecture. And I'm not comfortable forming conjectures. Um, That's why I'm telling you part of it is conjecture. So you apply what I say to the Bible and see if you think it's trustworthy. First, the church, if it is to be a sending church, if it is to be authentic, must always be fervently engaged in the primary work of worship. The call of the Spirit came to Antioch as they ministered to the Lord and fasted. As they worshiped the Lord with so much intensity that at points they laid aside eating food so they could give themselves more totally to the worship of God. The church must be about the primary thing all of the time. And the primary thing is worship. Perhaps you're aware that a considerable debate has been raging among evangelicals concerning the mission of the church. And if you're interested in that kind of thing, I would commend a book very highly, uh, simply entitled, What is the Mission of the Church? by Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert. And it's an excellent book because it uses so much Bible. I'm always concerned about books treating biblical subjects and there's very little Bible. They use lots of Bible. And and they build a well-documented case that the Great Commission defines the mission of the church and must always take priority over secondary issues as important, intriguing, and compelling as those secondary issues may appear to be, like social justice. 
However, I would suggest, and I'm sure these guys agree, that there is something even more compelling for the church than sending the gospel. And that's worship of God. The church is comprised of living stones built together as a spiritual house that we might offer spiritual sacrifices to God, acceptable to God through Christ. Whatever else the church is about, it's about worship. And it is possible that churches become so consumed in even such a good thing as mission and everything that goes into missions that they lose sight of the first thing, the worship of God. We must not forget that the call to send out missionaries came as the church was ministering to the Lord, engaged in spiritual worship. The sending church must be, above everything else, a worshiping church. God willing, I'll talk more about that tomorrow morning. Secondly, in terms of the activity of the church, the church was submitted to the commands of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit said, separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And the church did not debate. The church yielded. The church was submissive. There's no evidence that anybody said, wait a minute, let's don't get ahead of ourselves. We need to think about what this will cost us, what we will be losing, what will we gain. It's none of that. The Holy Spirit said, there are two men here that I want to go abroad and preach the gospel, and I want you to send them. Now, how does the Spirit speak to us in that way? We talked about that a little bit earlier. We cannot expect direct revelation, special revelation from God. But we should expect direction from the Lord mediated by the Scriptures. And this will come to us as we labor in the Bible as the most prominent part of our worship. Worship is the main thing, and the Bible is the main thing in worship. I mean, we make everything complicated. Worship is really not that complicated. We pray the Bible. We sing the Bible. We read the Bible. We preach the Bible. Our worship is centered in the Bible. And I think that we will come to have burdens at the appropriate time for particular works as we are in the Scriptures, as we are devoted to the Word of God, the Spirit of God 
will highlight certain things at certain times in the life of a church. He will create peculiar burdens at particular times. And in conjunction with those burdens, very often providence will appear on the scene just in time, opening doors and providing opportunities to do what the Scripture calls us to do. I spent an embarrassingly long period of time preaching through the book of Romans. I won't tell you how long it took me. It would be a lifetime to certain animals. But in conjunction to preaching Romans 11, the Spirit of God began to work on me and I think work on a lot of the people concerning our need to pray and to evangelize Hebrews according to the flesh. To me, it's sad. We don't think much about taking the gospel to the Jews. And studying that text, that particular burden rose to the surface. And about the same time, we were introduced to a man who serves Christian witness to the Jews. You see what happened? We were in the Bible, studying the Bible, worshiping God according to the Bible. We come to have this burden, and providence opens a door for us to engage in the very thing that we had come to see to be peculiarly important. And it became our joyful responsibility to submit to what God was doing, what he was saying to us in the Bible and the opportunities He was providing for us in providence. Thirdly, the sending church must be willing and ready to make sacrifices. And perhaps big sacrifices. We previously referenced the sacrifice of loosing valued teachers, perhaps even church officers, from their immediate church responsibility. And again, I ask you to think how difficult that must have been for the Antioch church to lose the Apostle Paul and Barnabas at the same time. You see, it's a pleasure of God to wrap spiritual gifts in human garb. Spiritual gifts take the form of human beings. And they have faces and voices and they have personalities. And very often those human beings become treasured to the church. Not primarily because of their personalities or their appearance, certainly, but because of the meshing together of the human and the spiritual. And we identify the ministry of the Word of God with a certain man, with his voice, with his appearance. 
And we may, if we're not careful, come to think that without that particular human being, that we will not have the Word of God. I can still remember how sad I was as a little boy when the pastor of my home church under whose ministry I had been converted left that church to go pastor another church in a different state. I was just a kid, and I didn't understand how that happened. I was just profoundly sad and a little bit irked, honestly, that he would leave. If churches only send proven servants of Christ, they will likely end up sending some of their own shepherds, teachers upon whom they have come to depend. And it will be painful. It will be hard. But that's just one element of sacrifice. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Second Corinthians chapter 11, verse 7. Paul says, Did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted? Because I preach the gospel of God to you free of charge. Now notice what he says. I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to minister to you. And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one. For what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. And in everything, I kept myself from being burdensome to you. And so I will keep myself. And if you look back at chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians with regard to another matter, the matter of collecting funds for the poor in Jerusalem, Paul writes about the poverty of the Macedonians. That they were willing to give themselves to the Lord and out of their poverty to make sacrificial gifts. What's the point? The point is somebody has to pay the material cost of missions. And ordinarily, we don't send a missionary to an unreached people and begin taking offerings the first week that we're there. We don't expect the unevangelized, unconverted to pay for the gospel, right? Who pays? Who supports the missionaries and their families so that they have plenty of food to eat, suitable shelter over their heads, transportation? Who pays for that? Somebody has to pay for that. And if, if the missionary needs to rent a meeting place, who pays for that? If he needs life insurance, if a child gets sick, who pays for that? 
if he needs to run advertisements or print materials, who pays for that? You see, that becomes a responsibility of the sending church. And while it's optimal that other churches will enter into this burden with the sending church, the buck stops with the sending church, literally. It stops with them. They carry the ultimate and final responsibility. So this becomes a huge question for churches contemplating sending laborers abroad. If all else fails and all the other resources dry up, are we willing and able to support this work completely by ourselves? Sending churches must be the primary supporting churches. Those who are sent must be able to depend upon the church that sends them, commends them to support them. And that commitment may mean that the sending church for a time has to forego lesser things like a building project or improvements in a building or additional paid staff. And if those kind of sacrifices have to be made, they must be made joyfully or you will come to resent mission. You must be completely convinced that this work of sending missionaries has priority in your life as a church. Sometimes you may have to actually employ one of your own to go to other churches and raise funds for this mission that you are endeavoring to execute. Last thing about the sending church. The sending church must sustain a living, active, fervent, unwavering commitment to the people who are sent. Out of sight, out of mind. You ever heard that? That's more than a clever saying. It can happen with missionaries. They've been on the field for three years. You haven't seen them in three years. In the busyness of everyday life, in the crunch of taking care of your own private affairs, you can forget them. Oh, I would never do that. Really? Really? Go over your list of missionaries and tell yourself the last time you prayed for each and every one on that list. And I hope you can say, over this past week, I prayed for everyone. I hope all of you can say that. I wouldn't be surprised if some of you can. The sending church must put together a plan and a program for keeping their missionaries before the minds of God's people. Missionaries must communicate. The leaders of the church must take that communication and share it. 
And if the missionary, for whatever reason, is not communicating, the leaders of the church must reach out to them and say, we haven't heard anything recently. What's happening with you? How can we pray for you? And the sending church must periodically plan visits to the place where the missionary lives and works. So it's a big thing, sending missionaries. What, what an enormous privilege it is for a church to be able to say, we have under God helped plant churches here, 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 here. And there are people that we will see in heaven in part because God worked through us to send them the gospel. There are few things more exciting than that. But beloved, it's, it's work. It's romantic in a sense. It's glamorous in a sense. But much more fundamentally, it's a supernatural work of God into which we are privileged to enter. But it is a work and we must be committed, and we must give. And sometimes the church must be prepared to suffer, to see it happen. Well, may God not use any of this to discourage you, but to sharpen your vision and your burden. And may, and I know you have a history of sending missionaries, I pray that, that that history will increase and abound till Jesus come. Let's pray. Father, it's, it's beyond our capacity to comprehend why you would save human beings makes more sense to us that you would have eradicated the fallen race and begun again with a whole new race. That's not your pleasure. Your pleasure is to redeem the fallen, the corrupt, the debauched, the depraved, and to make of them vessels of honor for the glory of your grace. Thank you for doing that. For so many of us, and thank you for giving us the privilege of partnering with you and seeking to do that for the world. Teach us and lead us and guide us and use us more than we've ever been used before for the spread of the fame of Jesus Christ throughout the world. We pray because of him and in his name, amen.